Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by Augustine Legal PR, the event, media, marketing, and advertising firm for lawyers. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For on-demand links to all of our episodes and links to our host station, please visit our website and select the link called On Demand Episodes. You can find that at AugustineLegalPR.com, and I'll spell that A-U-G-U-S-T-I-N-E, LegalPR.com. Our show today is TV Court and Commentary with Judge Alex Ferrer, a former police officer, attorney, and Florida Circuit Court judge, Judge Alex E. Ferrer hosts Judge Alex, the highly rated courtroom strip, is now in its seventh season on 20th uh, television. Judge Alex is the only television judge with extensive police, legal, and judicial experience, presiding over a wide array of cases, resolving complicated issues, and with his straightforward approach and cogent rulings. In 1995, at the age of 34, Judge Alex was elected judge, making him the youngest circuit court judge in the 11th Judicial Circuit, where he served as a family and criminal division judge for 10 years. Judge Alex received his Juris Doctorate and degree from the University of Miami Law School, where he became a published member of its law review, and eventually returned to become a judicial director for the university's alumni board. Upon receiving his degree, Judge Alex practiced law in Miami, focusing on civil litigation, including hundreds of suits involving medical malpractice, wrongful deaths, personal injuries, and commercial business disputes. After becoming an attorney and to further impotent his commitment to law and order, Judge Alex served as a volunteer reserve police officer in the Miami suburb of Homestead. But the experience of law enforcement and legal representation were only stepping stones in his dream of reaching for higher aspirations in the U.S. We're going to hear more from Judge Alex in our hour this afternoon. We thank you all for your time. We want to welcome our callers. We have a great show for you this afternoon. If you wish to ask a question or have a comment, of course, our show is neutral and objective. Telephone number is 917-889-9732. Option one to be placed in our caller queue. Again, that's 917-889-9732. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorney guests among callers and guests on this show cannot give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have questions, you should consult with an attorney in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, I'll give you a brief overview of our four segments for this evening. First, we're going to talk about the case in the Anthony case and what we can learn from its coverage. Second uh, segment, we'll talk about the wisdom of TV coverage in criminal court cases. Then in our third segment, we'll talk about how TV court shows actually work from behind the scenes. And fourth, we'll round out with some talk about public interaction with the legal system. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Judge Alex. Thank you very much, Nick. It's a pleasure being with you. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you uh, got to become a judge again, and how you got interested in uh, working in media. Uh, well, media actually approached me, but I, I originally started as a uh, as a young police officer in Miami. I was 19 when I became a cop, and uh, I uh, continued studying my way through uh, through undergrad and law school while I while I worked full time. And eventually became a lawyer, and then uh, realized that it wasn't as gratifying as police work had been, 
and I, uh, I was looking for something that gave me more personal satisfaction than, than representing clients, and that's what led me to uh, run for and become elected as uh, the youngest circuit court judge in Miami. And uh, then I did that for a good 10 years uh, while I, uh, while I uh, taught judges throughout Florida, uh, and I still teach judges, as a matter of fact, through even today. Uh, every year at judicial conferences in Florida. And then uh, television kind of came calling at a point where I was making a change in my career. I was uh, I was being considered by Governor Jeb Bush for a vacancy on the appeals court. And I had gone through all the screenings and come out as a front runner and was uh, waiting for my interview with the governor when uh, 20th Television called me and said, we'd like to do a court show and we think you'd be good at it. And uh, all of a sudden I was on television. So it <laughs> wasn't exactly something I sought. It's just something that kind of sought me. Well, some of those things kind of happen sometimes. You know, my I grew up, I had an uncle who was a judge, and I followed in the footsteps and went to law school. But I also had a dad who worked in advertising and radio business and uh, was a musician. So after law school, when I said I was going to L.A. to work in uh, tour management, he just about had my head. Um, <laughs> but, bet. you know, uh, it was an interesting thing to meet different people and see, you know, who runs a lot of uh, things in the entertainment industry. And, uh, and now I'm a publicist for lawyers, so... Um, I guess that, uh, you know, we sometimes take turns in our career, and it sounds like you took a, a lot of interesting turns and twists here. I want to also mention to our folks listening at home not to forget that the new season of Judge Alex does begin this coming next week, Monday, September 3rd. You can check www.judgealex.com for your local airtimes on your local affiliates. So, Judge Alex, tell us a little bit about the Casey Anthony trial and what your thoughts are on that. I mean, a lot of us watched everything, and, uh, you know, I know that if you go through the, the Facebook or the Twitter feeds, you saw enough pictures from that trial that anyone with any legal experience could say, kind of see uh, how things are going. It was interesting to watch just from the pictures alone, but what more do you have to tell us? I think it was a fascinating case. I think it's one of the most fascinating cases I've uh, I've uh, been able to cover. I was I was a commentator on probably every network at one point or another about that case uh, and covered it for eight weeks. And I, I was just it was just fascinating. I mean, people were riveted by the behavior of the mother of a missing child, and and uh, you know, eventually, of course, uh, when they turned out to be uh, a dead child. Um, and they just couldn't tune away. It got international coverage. It was being watched all over the world, not just in the United States. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, having covered the case from beginning to end and having been a circuit court judge and having been a former police officer, no doubt in my mind, as, as far as my opinion is concerned, I have no doubt that she murdered her daughter. The jury didn't see it that way, and that's what really matters in our judicial system. And, you know, we got to the end of it, and, uh, you know, she was acquitted, which was a shock to a lot of people. Uh, it was surprising to me. It wasn't just shock because, you know, as lawyers and police officers and judges see this all the time. We see people who we feel are clearly guilty acquitted. Uh, but the public doesn't. See, the public sees a little clip on television about somebody who was arrested for a crime, and they go, oh, you know, he ought to go to prison or whatever. And then it'll be months and months and months later, they hear about the trial, and then all of a sudden they hear the person was acquitted, and they may just, you know, make an uh, abrupt comment about the judicial system not working or something, and then they go on about their day because they're not invested in the case. They just know about it, what they heard in the news briefly. This was different. This was this was. America following the case day by day and hearing everything that the jury heard. And that made the uh, the outcry so loud because 
the the public had actually followed the trial, had heard all the evidence, and was looking at the jury going, how could you find different than I found? Um, granted, the jury did not get to hear everything that the public heard or things that were excluded that the public still got to hear, but but the the jury, the public in this case, was emotionally invested in the case because they had followed it every day and they'd heard about it every day and they knew all the evidence that came in. And that led a lot of people to say the judicial system failed. And I've spent a lot of time telling people the judicial system didn't fail. The judicial system does not guarantee you an outcome. It does not guarantee you that O.J. Simpson will be convicted or that uh, Casey Anthony will be convicted or that somebody will be acquitted. It, it guarantees you a process. And that process is that the prosecutor and the defense attorney will have an equal opportunity to interview these potential prospective jurors and select from them 12 people who will uh, promise to set aside their biases and listen to the evidence and make a determination from the evidence whether they believe that the state has proven the defendant guilty or not guilty. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what the rest of America thinks. We weren't screened for our biases. What matters is what, whether or not those 12 people are convinced beyond every reasonable doubt after listening to the evidence. And they weren't. But the system worked. I mean, it did what it's supposed to do. The outcome wasn't what I thought it should have been, but that's the way it goes. And as I said, as cops and lawyers, we see that all the time. It, it happens frequently. It's just the rest of America doesn't usually see it. Right, right. You know, I thought it was um, this summer I spoke to the uh, National Association of Legal Investigators, and the speaker right behind me was Andrea Lyon. Well, I, she was uh, you know, Casey Anthony's one, one of the lawyers. I just about jumped out of my skin when I found out that she was the one following me. You know, how am I supposed to go before her? But, you know, in this, in this case... Uh, Casey Anthony had wonderful representation, representation that most people aren't able to uh, come by, you know, and I often wonder and we think, well, what is it about her that made this a big media sensation that and it becomes a big media sensation and now we do have people who are jumping in on this and, um, you know, you've got top talent from around the country. Um, what do you think are some of the things that drove this case to get so much media attention? Uh, what were some of the special uh, parts of the recipe, you think? I think, I think the outrageousness that a, a mother would lose her child and um, not tell anybody and go out partying. I don't care if you believe that she drowned in the pool, which I can dissuade you of that, I think, in, in a minute. But if you believe she drowned in the pool, it's still no more justifiable for a mother to go out and, you know, go partying and whooping it up and ignoring the death of her daughter than if you believe what I believe happened, which is that she actually murdered her, her daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the so the public was shocked at the outset and they were riveted. I disagree with you on the, on the legal representation, I have to tell you. I don't think she had fantastic legal representation from the primary counsel. I, I've never found Jose Baez's representation to be... Uh, particularly impressive. Cheney Mason's a great lawyer, uh, you know, but he wasn't lead counsel. Neither was Miss Lyons. Um, I don't think that she w was acquitted because of Jose Baez. I think she was acquitted despite Jose Baez. He may be a good lawyer in some respects, but he was in over his head on the death penalty case. It was evident in his uh, trial skills. It was evident in his leading questions that weren't supposed to be asked that way, uh, that he just could not learn how to do properly and I, I i think he maybe he's a good lawyer in other respects but that case was too big of a case for him and that's one of the things that bothered me that some lawyer would take a case like that when they were not 
really, in my opinion, qualified to take it. Uh, so, other than that, I think that I think that as America became fascinated by the by the scenario, you know, this mother who is out there partying and getting tattoos and entering hot body contests while her daughter is basically decomposing, um, it just became more fascinating as the evidence came in and as, and, the, and the defense attorney, the defense got up there and accused the father of sexual abuse, sexually abusing his daughter, which I don't believe for a second, based on the fact that they didn't provide even an allegation of a date and time of anything. They just threw it out there. And any any good lawyer knows you take that witness on cross-examination and you drag them where you want them to go. You give the specifics. Isn't it true on such and such a date, uh, you know, November 3rd, 1995, you took your eight-year-old daughter and you did this and this and this. And you give those specific allegations if it's true, if you really receive those allegations from the client. Um, uh, you you give those and you you that impresses in the jury's mind the mm -hmm. the reality you know and, oh that's what they know, taught I, us was, I think the jury just uh, you know I mean the public was fascinated by all the twists and turns in the case I was I agree I agree here's a question about the jury now of course the jury is you know not allowed to hear certain things but how much of the court of public opinion can you really hide from jurors these days well I think you I think you can hide a lot if the if the jury's jurors follow instructions. You know, if yeah. the jury listens to the instruction that says, "Do not listen to any media coverage, do not read any media coverage," I mean, we give that to jurors every in every case, and we ask them to abide by it. And it's important that they do it. Um, if they don't do it, then it doesn't matter if the case is on television or, or where it is, because if they're going to read the paper, they're, you know, there are going to be uh, articles in the paper talking about the the uh, trial the day before and talking about evidence that was suppressed and things like that. So. You have to rely on jurors to follow the law, to obey the law, and to obey the instructions the judge gives them. I agree, and uh, I know that a lot of those instructions, I, I like the no tweeting instructions. A lot of those are pretty standard in all states now, but it's really, I think it's just getting harder and harder and harder to, you know, shelter people who are not supposed to have access to information when they're inundated uh, in so many spots. So it's an interesting challenge. Uh, we're going to pause for our first set of breaks here, uh, but first I want to ask Judge Alex if you have any more final comments about the Casey Anthony, um, Casey Anthony matter. I do, I do agree with you that it's difficult in days of in these days of social media. You know, they, all they have to do is turn on their Twitter account to see what their friends are saying, and up pops the news about what's going on in their trial or what's being suppressed behind their backs and stuff. So yes, it's it's a challenge in today's day and age. It is, it is, and I suppose it's just the uh, well. In this case, I, I and, and forgive me, I don't know every detail of it. Was the jury sequestered uh, at several points, or were they free to be on their own? No, the jury was sequestered throughout the trial. Yeah, so, you know, even even at that even at that point, you know, so very interesting. All right, well, we're going to pause and then we're going to be back with Judge Alex in our second segment. We'll talk about more about the wisdom of TV coverage of criminal court cases. First, I want to tell you about a few family matters and for those of you listening here in Chicagoland, Chicago now has a new family law column. Check out Friends and Family Law, the new column about family law on Chicago Now, a Tribune Media Group publication featuring real stories in and out of court in your law doctorate Law Talk Radio host yourself here, Nick Augustine, is that's me. I interview the people who work in family law industry and those who have tips and stories to share with our Chicago Now readers. Please visit Chicago Now forward slash family law for more information about our new weekly column. 
Also, I want to tell you about the Bryan Law Group is a family law firm that handles all the matters that affect your family, including school law and animal law. Attorney Susan Bryan is available to speak to your group and help your members learn what to do when they spot the legal issues that affect families and what people should know about protecting their families. Please call Susan Bryan for more information at area code 630-202-5920 for more information and a free consultation. Telephone number again, 630-202-5920 for the Bryan Law Group. And back to our show with TV's Judge Alex. We talked a little bit about the case in the Anthony trial in our first segment. Now we're continuing our conversation and talking about TV coverage of criminal cases. And uh, I'd like to ask Judge Alex what he thinks about the wisdom of TV coverage in these cases. Um, I I think TV coverage is not something that's going to go away. And I I don't have a problem with it from from the outset because, as you know, the courtroom's in the United States, unlike some other countries, are open to the public. And you can walk into just about any courtroom and watch a trial, any trial, only under very limited circumstances are the are the courtrooms closed from the public, very, very limited. So all that TV coverage does is expand that courtroom. All it does is, is you know, if there are 20 seats for people, now you've expanded it to millions. Anybody can watch it from home. Uh, obviously, not every case is going to be shown on television, although only the cases that are either most interesting, most sensationalized, or whatever. Um, the, the point that I would think is, is, uh, is the biggest contention against having uh, um, TV coverage is, is the risk that jurors are going to be exposed to commentary and information that they otherwise that might prejudice them in reaching a verdict. And that, that's very true. That is a risk. Um, the problem is that if jurors are not going to follow instructions from the court and uh, avoid TV coverage just like they avoid newspaper and things like that, then they're, they're probably going to read the paper and they're probably going to have other forms of communication, whether it be Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. So we have to rely on jurors to do what, what they are instructed to do. If, if not, then it doesn't matter if it's covered on television because you're not going to tell the media, don't write articles about it, don't cover it. You're not going to tell the news uh, not to report it on the six o'clock and not eleven o'clock news. Uh, so I, I think that the the um, the reality is the risk is always there. Now, uh, as far as the benefit, you know, there to, in my opinion, uh, there's another benefit beyond being able to watch a trial. And the other benefit that we get out of it is, I think, exposing how our justice system works is a positive thing for a variety of reasons. One is people are very view the judicial system as mysterious. They don't know how it works. They don't know why it works a certain way. They don't know what they don't know why people get acquitted or convicted. And I think that in order to have faith in the judicial system, you need to know how it works. That's number one. And number two, the uh, any flaws in it, anything that goes wrong should be exposed. We should those shouldn't be buried and hidden where only the lawyers and the judges and uh, know about it. It should be open to the public because that increases the likelihood that we are going to improve our judicial system. If there's something that is going on that's wrong or that does not appear to have the the correct outcome, then the judicial system will be improved and modified to get rid of that problem, and I think that's a good thing for everybody. So, there are there are certainly cons, uh but I think the pros outweigh it. So, Jeff, could you talk a little bit about primary sources of information? Uh, the basis for my question is that there are so many 
forms of content available online. And there's a popular book I like to refer to called The Cult of the Amateur, where just about anyone can, again, write on different topics. People can comment on uh, news articles. And some people read more of the comments on um, you know whatever the major news publication. The comments, anyone can post any comment. So you're flooding people's heads with all this information and misdirection. People often get misdirected on what the issues are or what, you know, what is really happening. I mean, you could see um, if you have a, you know, on a, which is what are your thoughts on, on people in trying to find primary sources of good information and your thoughts on critical thought as people are watching these things unravel on TV? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, the Internet right now has made everybody an expert uh, without any credibility, without any substance. And you read things, and, you know, I think we are at the infancy of that. I think that the because the social media is so new because the internet is still a growing thing, even though it's been around for quite a while, the use of it is growing in different ways every day. People are becoming more skeptical. People, you know, still do. And at the beginning, certainly did believe everything they read. And what that led to is you can, you can find an opinion about just about anything that will go contrary to another opinion on the internet. You can find people professing things to be facts that are not. You can find people saying, uh, if you talk about, for example, the shooting in New York the other day, you know, you can find somebody who'll comment and say, you know, it always happens. You know, New York, New York police are famous for doing this and this and this. And I happened to come across a, a comment like that the other day as I was reading a, a story and I, I looked down and a couple of comments later somebody said can you give me a specific example because I've googled it and I can't find any reference to that instance where you say the New York Police Department did this and the response the person did respond and they said well I didn't really mean NYPD did this I guess I misspoke or whatever but it's happened before across America and you start to see right. that people will make statements like a blatant statements as if they're true and the public if they're if they're naive enough will simply accept those as facts. Oh, they must be true. NYPD must have done this. Uh, and so you're right about that. There is, a, there is that risk, and there are uh, just, you know, as many people as there are out there, there are postings uh, expressing opinions one way or another, many of them completely unfounded. So I think as time is going on, the public, the reading public, the intelligent public is – realizing and has realized that you can't believe everything somebody posts on the internet no matter how forcefully they say it no matter how sure they are about it and we see it every day in political speeches i mean you you, you want to put court to one side look at all the commentary about politics and all the allegations about obama and all the allegations about romney and and so many of them are twisted and untrue and just intended to malign the person that they don't agree with That's so right. i think i think most listeners and most viewers out there um, are very rapidly becoming aware that just because somebody says it on the Internet doesn't mean, mean it's true. And that's the point we have to get to, because you're right. There need to be critical sources of information, uh, whether for you that's a news organization, whether it's a, uh, a particular group, whether it's Fox or CNN or HLN or, or whoever it is. Um, that's an individual decision as to how much weight you give to their reporting. And another point that I'd make 
is follow the money. I always tell people, because uh, my brother was telling me the other day that he saw a documentary that was alleging this and this and this about one of the political candidates. And I said, look at the credits and look who funded it. Look at the funding. What, you know, where, if you follow the money and the advertising dollars, you can see where the slants or the points on, on interest are. And it's really just getting difficult, again, to find neutral and objective uh, information out there. So, again, people, critical thought, it's a good thing. Um, so, Judge Alex, I appreciate your comment about the benefit of exposing people to the justice system and letting them know how it works. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more in our uh, next segment about how TV show, how TV court shows work behind the scenes, because I know there's a whole uh, different, uh, there's a variety of different things. Tell us a little bit about your show, uh, how your show is different from the others. Well, you know, Judge Alex has uh, started in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2005. It's been on the air seven years, and as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, season eight is about to launch September 3rd, this uh, this Monday. That's coming up. And our show is probably, you know, the court shows in general, and there are a few court shows out there, format-wise are not dissimilar. Format-wise, it's they're small claims cases. You've got no representation. It's a judge against, uh, with the litigants appearing before them, and you're trying to resolve issues in a short period of time. So, uh, format-wise, they're very similar. What really changes them is personality of the judge, the uh, the uh, uh, particular whoever the particular judge is in the case. My 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 uh, courtroom is. I guess viewed more as a law and order type of courtroom. I don't let people run amok like some of the other judges do. Um, I oh, I should say I rarely do. The only time I let somebody really go off is when one of the litigants just can't bring themselves to talk. And I've had that, and I understand it because being in a courtroom is unnerving enough. Being in a courtroom that has cameras and lights is really unnerving. And so every once in a while we get a litigant who just kind of freezes and doesn't even know what to say, and I'll just go to the other side. And the other side will start sometimes you know, accusing the litigant of wrongdoing, and that sparks them up. All of a sudden they're like, oh, that is not true. Let me tell you what he did. But other than that, I run a pretty tight ship. Uh, and I think that's because of my background as a cop and also as a judge on in Miami. I, I run it pretty much the way I did in Miami, the only difference being that I can speak my mind. And that is a very liberating feeling to be able to tell people exactly what you think, you know, call them out for their their behavior, uh, you know, tell them what you think of their claim. It's it's what America's thinking. It's what they're doing at home. They're sitting there screaming at their TV or uh, giving their opinion. And uh, it's good to hear a judge, which you typically can't do, as you know, as a judge. You typically sit back and you listen to everything, and you don't really comment because you don't want to be recused. Well, I don't, I don't have that risk, so I, I comment to my heart's content. <laughs> and, and I think the difference is also that you know I do have a sense of humor. I, you'll, you'll, if you watch the show, you'll, you'll see that I can be lighthearted. I can joke around with the litigants. Uh, they'll sometimes laugh with me. But I can turn on a dime. I can be laughing with you, and all of a sudden I find out you did something outrageous, and all of a sudden the right. guy, the judge you thought was your friend ain't your friend anymore. Right, right. Uh, another point I'd like you to comment on, if you could. Many of our courts have the, you know, we in in um in our suburban uh, counties here in Chicagoland, many, many of us have the court smart system. Cook County does not. Um, the court smart system, it's like federal court. It, it's everything is mic'd. It picks everything up, and everything is recorded digitally. <laughs> for transcripts later. Other courts don't have transcripts, so that really seems to, uh, you know, people stop. I think a lot of judges will stop, think, and take longer and, you know, and then go forward. Uh, you know, some are a little more uh, loose-lipped, but um, 
you know, any advice you have for the general public on the role of the judge and, you know, expand a little bit more about what they can say, what they can't say, where it seems like, you know, a judge wants to say something. Why won't they just say it? They won't say it. And the attorneys, I mean, people just get confused. Yeah, I mean, typically, I mean, judges can certainly, you know, say things. I mean, they don't have to sit up there like a statute. It's just that you're always careful that your comments do not suggest that you have a prejudice against one side or another. And, and judges like, uh, you know, jurors are supposed to as well. Uh, judges form opinions in a case like anybody else. They just don't finalize them. Like I, I can go into a case and I can have an opinion of how I think it's going to come out. But from years of being a judge and from experience, I know that I, that opinion is completely subject to change. Uh, and and if I hear something, all of a sudden I, I start going down a different t- track. Wait a minute, you're saying this. Now that doesn't make sense. And all of a sudden I'm cross-examining the person I thought was telling the truth. And I may come to a completely different conclusion. And you have to, as a judge, be able to to do that. You have to be able to keep your mind completely open and not lock yourself into an opinion. Um, and what happens is if you make comments on the bench, uh, you can lead one party or another to think you've made up your mind and they're not going to get a fair trial from you. So this, you know, typically this is pre-trial. Uh, this is usually before you, you get to trial that, that you've been hearing motions and all this and you want to avoid any comments that suggest that you are biased against one party or another. Um, but even in trial, you, tr- you try to avoid uh, extraneous commentary. You listen and, and you rule on things that they that they ask you to rule on, and, and then you go forward from there. At the end of the day, the jury is the one that usually makes the decisions in a criminal case and most civil cases. Um, but uh, in cases where there's no jury, you're the finder of fact. So it's, it's important that you, you give a perception of being neutral so that both sides feel they're getting a fair trial. And that being said, you know, most judges – We'll give you a fair trial no matter what, whatever their opinion is. Um, but, you know, it's the perception that is just as important as the reality. If people don't think they're getting a fair trial, then it doesn't really matter that you're giving them one. Exactly. And another comment I'd like to make for uh, those out there, jury instructions are not always easy to follow. They're not always. You have to remember, lawyers write and submit jury instructions, and sometimes they get real complex. I think actually the correct statement would be jury instructions rarely are easy to follow. Um, and I think that's one of the problems in the Casey Anthony trial. I think that uh, the jury had a real difficult time with the concept of reasonable doubt. And there are some jurors who, you know, they can't get it through their head. It's a difficult instruction in Florida. Um, I can explain it to jurors and did when I was on the bench in a very uh, clear manner, but I, a lot of judges don't want to tread there because the Supreme Court says you mess with the jury instructions, you could be retrying the case if you give an instruction that's not completely clear. So um, you get jurors who think that beyond it, or every reasonable doubt means beyond all doubt. And so then they, they're sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, what if this happened? What if that happened? Well, you know, anything is possible. You could never convict anybody if the standard was beyond all doubt because beyond all doubt would mean the only way you could be absolutely convinced is if you saw it with your own eyes. And if you saw it with your own eyes, you couldn't be a juror because you would be a witness. So that's a standard that no juror could ever meet. So jury instructions are difficult. I'll give you that. And, you know, it's up to the attorneys to get up there and simplify them in closing arguments. Yep. 
I'm so glad that you're on this show because we don't have many judges who can uh, you know, tell people some of these things, so I really do appreciate this. We're going to pause for our uh, second set of breaks and then come back in segment three. We'll talk a little bit more. We touched on this earlier, but we'll go into further depth about how TV court shows work behind the scenes. But first, I have a couple uh, I have an offer and information to tell you about. Uh, first, the offer, special law offer from uh, Law Bulletin Publishing and Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Listeners have until the end of September to take advantage of the Law Bulletin's combo package uh, located at lawbulletin.com forward slash combo. Uh, you'll get the print and online version of the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin plus a one-year subscription to the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, all for $159. Now, don't forget to check out the Around the Water Cooler articles where my colleagues and I share tips and stories with our Chicago Lawyer Magazine readers. Again, lawbulletin.com forward slash combo to take advantage of this special offer and get both for the price of $159. Again, that runs through the end of September. Next, I want to tell you about an upcoming radio show and series that we're going to be doing with our friends at the Vitito Law Group. They're going to be appearing on Law Talk Radio to talk about the NFL confession cases. Law Talk Radio theme for September is school and sports safety, and you might know our friends at the Vitito Law Group from the movie about Aaron Brockovich, the modern-day David who loves a good brawl with today's Goliaths. Well, Aaron and the Vitito Law Group team are fighting to change policy and perception about NFL player safety and what you should know about traumatic brain injury. Keep on checking in with us for more information about our School and Sports Safety Month here at Law Talk Radio. And back to our program with TV's Judge Alex. I want to recap for those of you just turning in. or uh, You can always click back and listen to our on-demand episode for the rest of the show. If you missed anything, first segment, we talked a little bit about the Casey Anthony case and what we can learn from its coverage. Then we talked about the wisdom of TV court coverage and criminal cases and some of the responsibilities to listeners and viewers to really use critical thought. Um, and extending to that, how TV court shows work is our third segment. And uh, Judge Alex, can you first tell us the difference between your program again and some of the other ones? I, th I think it just varies according to the judge. I mean, I, I, we take uh, cases that we think will be interesting to the public, and we're, in that case we're looking for relationships, we're looking for coworkers, neighbors, friends, uh, family members, former lovers. And the reason for that is because, you know, two people who were involved in a transaction, a guy in Iowa who sold something to a guy in Georgia, they're going to be boring. I mean, it's going to be like, I sold him this, he didn't pay. Well, that wasn't what I ordered. Well, it was what you ordered. You just didn't want it once you got it. It's, it's going to be like watching paint dry. Yeah. But if you're looking, about, you're looking at people with a relationship, like family and friends and coworkers and all that, they generally don't sue each other the first time. So you get the benefit of the backstory, and uh, you know this. This is the straw that broke the camel's back, and those are the things that the public at home can relate to. So you add to that the personality of the judge. You know, clearly Judge Judy has a particular personality. I have a particular personality, and so the public watches you, and they can relate to you, and they tune in. I run my courtroom, as I said before, pretty tight. I run a kind of a law and order courtroom. I've got. I'm the only judge on television who is a former police officer, lawyer, and judge. Uh, we've had judges on television who've never even been judges, um, and then you can think back all the way to uh, Mayor Koch when he was on when Mayor Koch was on uh, People's Court after uh, after the first season after Wapner. Um, he was never a judge that I know of, uh, and there's been quite a few since then. But 
But uh, even of all the judges that, they, that we've had on television, we've never had one that had the, the background that I have, the police lawyer and judge background. And it's You're actually a judge, because, right. Yes, because it, it's, a big, it's a big help. Yeah, I was a judge, in, a state judge in Florida before doing the show and, and a cop before that, a lawyer as well. And it gives you different perspectives. All of that gives you different perspectives. And you, you've seen it from pretty much every angle, so it's kind of hard to snow me. Not to say I can't get snowed, but it's just a lot harder. Uh, and so you put that together with my personality, my sense of humor, and we have a, a pretty entertaining package. We have a, we have a show that is informative because I, I do my show different than other judges do, and this is one, one point I, I started to mention and forgot to come back to. Uh, I do my show according to the law where the case originated. Now, I try anywhere from eight to nine cases, I'm sorry, nine to ten cases a day. Uh, so I, I will try for three days, uh, anywhere between 27 and 30 trials. Um, and I, they, we take them from all over the country. So my first case might be Nebraska law, the second one Chicago, or uh, I should say Illinois law, the third one California, the fourth one Florida law. And once I get on the bench, I have to know the law of that state for the issue I'm trying. So the, the week before I get a complaint and answer, I contact my researcher. I said, I need to know... Uh, the landlord-tenant statute in New York as it pertains to security deposits, they go research that. And I tell them, look, in Texas, I need to know whether they have a one-bite rule in a dog-bite case and also whether there's a leash law in Harris County. And they find me that. And then the night when I'm taping all day, I go back and I prepare all night looking at the laws. So once I get on the bench, I know what the law is in Indiana and in Nebraska with regard to these cases I'm trying. And the reason I do that is because when I started doing this show, I said, it's not fair that we, because we pull people from courthouse. I mean, we go to them and say, would you like me to try your case? And in my opinion, it's not fair for somebody in, in Illinois to agree to let me try their case. And then for me to just use what, basically what the other judges on television do, which is a general fairness principle. They generally do what they want to do, what they think is fair. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that you should get what the result you would have gotten in Illinois in front of the state court judge. You shouldn't get what I think. And you'll, you'll, I mean, if you watch any other shows, you'll notice they don't say in Nebraska the laws. You notice that right. I do. You, you'll right. notice that I will say that. And I just, I was just taping cases last week, and I told them, you know, in Missouri, this is the law. If you were in California, it'd be different, but you're not. And people like that. They're, they, they like the fact that first of all, they're fascinated by court. They, they find it informative. They're learning something at the same time as they're being entertained. They're laughing and they're they may be getting angry at the person, but but they're enjoying the uh, the lesson they're getting. And it also makes them think about. I wonder if the law is the same in in uh, Georgia, you know, where I live. You know, it's it's uh, it gives them a package that they don't get in most other court shows. Interesting. One of the comments that I heard from someone about TV court shows was that uh, people sign an agreement that that's uh, you know, it's like mediation, um, and you know the, the the judge will use a fairness uh, a fairness test, and the parties agree to just agree and uh, you know and that. Um, so there seems to be a whole wide variety of how these different shows operate. No, I I, I would say that they're very similar in that respect. We are what every court show judge on television is, is an arbitrator. We are arbitrators. Arbitrators are private judges. If uh, IBM and Microsoft were in a dispute and they didn't want to sit through the New York court system for 10 years waiting to go to trial, 
they could decide to go into arbitration uh, and have anybody, a private judge or a private judge panel, decide their case. Uh, if you have a, an account with any stockbroker, it's got an arbitration clause in there that says if there's a dispute, it doesn't go to court, it goes to arbitration. Uh, they don't want to be in front of a jury that lost all their money when the market fell. They want to be in front of an, a panel of arbitrators who are more detached. Um, so that's what all of the judges on television are. And the reason for that is we don't have jurisdiction over the entire country. You know, when I, if I was when I was a state court judge, I had jurisdiction over the state of Florida. Judge Judy, when she was a state court judge, had jurisdiction over New York. Now we're trying cases from California and Illinois and Nebraska, and you have to have you have to have authority to do that in order for it to be binding. And the way you get that authority is contractually. They sign a contract that says we agree that Judge Alex will be our arbitrator. His decision is final. He can use any fairness principle he he decides. I happen to choose to use their law, and that's my choice because I think that's that's the fairest result. Uh, but in in that respect, my decisions are more binding now than when I was a state court judge because there's no appeal. What I what I say goes, and that's it. But yes, they are they are signing agreements, and the agreements are basically contracts that appoint me as the arbitrator. That answers my question because I was wondering about the jurisdiction element of it, and I said maybe there's something I'm not catching. That so that does make sense. So that is. All right. So thank you for clearing that up. I learned something. I always learn things on these shows. Always very interesting. What are some other things that go on behind the scenes that other people might not know about? Well, I think that the the public doesn't realize, you know, I'm the figurehead of the show. I'm the name of the show. But the amount of work that goes into it, uh, there's 100 people working on our show, 100 people who make it happen. And it goes down to people who are going through courthouses all over the country looking for interesting cases, pulling them out, and people who are following up, sending letters to these litigants and saying, hey, you know, basically, instead of sitting in that courthouse for the next 10 months, we'll try your case next week. And and if they've seen me try cases on Judge Alex, um, they know they're going to get a fair shake. So I, that it makes it easier for us to get uh, for us to get the uh, litigants because if you know if you're if you're fair to people, you treat them well, and you know you you're honest about your your rulings and stuff. Uh, they they feel safe they feel comfortable that they can bring their dispute to you and so then we have producers who con who speak to them once they've indicated an interest to make sure that they can tell a story because i got to tell you there's a lot of people who are not very linear and they cannot tell you a uh, a story you know without going off onto a tangent that you don't want to go on and you know we have a certain amount of time uh to try the case now these are real trials so you know what you see on television is an edited version of the trial because we can't say you know okay um time's up you know we've got all the time all the uh show we need for television we're done because it's a real trial so i have to try the case until it ends until i've made up my mind i've heard all the evidence sometimes that might be 30 minutes sometimes that might be 45 sometimes it's an hour and 10 minutes and then they have to edit it down and make it fit in like a an 18 20 minute window so that they have time for commercials um so that brings me to another point which is you really have to respect the editors on these shows because you know these guys aren't lawyers and yet 
they really do a remarkable job. I mean, you know, I, sometimes I don't watch my show because, number one, I've already seen the case. I tried it. And number two, I know what got cut out. And so there are occasions where I want to pull my hair out because I go, oh, the reason for my ruling just <laughs> right. got cut out um, <laughs> by the editors. But I'll say 99 out of 100 times they edit it very well, especially considering they're not lawyers. Um, the other editing thing that drives me crazy is, is uh, sometimes uh, somebody will interrupt four times, and I finally slam them for interrupting. And they'll edit out three of the times because they need to make up time here. And all of a sudden, it looks like he interrupted once, and I slammed them. <laughs> uh, or vice versa. They interrupt three three times, and then I slam them, and they cut out my slamming them and telling them to be respectful or to sit down or to be quiet. <laughs> and it looks like they walked all over me. So, you know, you can't have it. You can't always have what you want, but I think in all all things considered, we have a big team of a, of a, a large number of people who make our show the success it is. I'm I'm just I'm just the name. Well, um, you know, I imagine that they have a tough job in weeding out, um, for lack of a better word, some of the crazies. I'm sure that when uh, the the thought of being on a TV you know TV judge show, I, I can imagine people just like turning up the drama. Uh, yeah, we get people who become overly dramatic. Uh, we get people who become scared and all. They were very talkative and very dramatic, and and we're going to be very personable and and interesting to watch. And then all of a sudden they go into panic and they're like, "Yes, sir, no, sir," and <laughs> it becomes a very slow and boring show. Um, there are a lot of things that go into. We don't necessarily want to weed out the crazies because I'll tell you, one of the benefits of watching my show is that you will learn to really appreciate your family and friends when you realize what other people's family and friends put them through. Mm-hmm. You know, you end up looking at it and going, well, you know, my family's crazy, but they're not that crazy. Yeah, you know what? Family law attorneys are also good sources of that. You know, it's uh, you know, I think one of the one of the reasons that I left and uh did not choose to practice law was because I had so much clerking experience in family law. Well, that yeah. put me uh <laughs> you know, uh, very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Um, let me see. I, you know, actually, now is a good time for our last break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about public interaction with the legal system and get some of Judge Alex's thoughts there. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, me and my firm. If you are a first-time listener and don't know who we are, well, my name is Nick Augustine, and I'm a publicist for lawyers. I generate frequent original content that helps attorneys and their clients find each other and get to know more about their practice. My methods of researching, investigating, and producing your media are focused on the image of clients' success. You can call me for a free consultation on legal marketing, advertising, and public relations at area code 630-445-1724. Again, that number is 630-445-1724 for Augustine Legal PR. You can also visit the Augustine Legal PR newsletter page at augustinelegalpr.com where you can sign up to receive free copies of our monthly updates and articles. Our mid-month mailing contains useful marketing and publicity articles from all of uh, the things that are published in various publications. And then our end-of-the-month article uh, newsletter features a synopsis of all of our monthly Law Talk radio programs with links, bios, and again, short synopsis so you can find out information about that. I also want to, before we get to our fourth segment, uh, let people know that we like to remind our listeners to share our broadcast links in your social networks. Many people find our shows through their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, and we thank all of you for your support in sharing our programming. We have uh, about a little under 15 minutes left, so at this point, uh, Judge Allen, 
Alex, let's talk a little bit more about the public interacting with the legal system. And I want to start with a premise. Um, I'd say like 10 some plus years ago when I was in law school, there was a more of a black curtain and the lawyers were on one side. I remember I was one of the guys who took the Westlaw CD and, you know, plug that in and upload that. Uh, you know, nowadays you can go to Westlaw and you know, jump on and do legal research at almost any you know decent public library. And the public does have more and more uh, access to the legal system and, and different things. So, you know, where I saw it used to it used to feel again like. Uh, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, the guy behind the curtain who knows all the law and you need the attorney as a, someone who knows the law because the people on the street couldn't possibly figure out or know the law and now they can. Um, so what we see is so many people going and doing things on their own, a lot of pro se matters, a lot of organizations there to help pro se's, sort of cutting lawyers out of the picture and I always say that the benefit of lawyers is the benefit of experience of knowing what is going to happen within the judicial system. So we have more of an interaction now, and it seems like more attorneys are sharing more and being more transparent with their clients and more clients are better educated. And again, that was the premise for why we wanted to start doing this show. Um, give me some of your thoughts on how you've seen the legal industry change over the years and, um, and talk a little bit about the flow of all this access to information. Well, I, th I think you're absolutely right, Nick. I think that, uh, you know, with the advance of uh, the Internet and Google, uh, the public can go out there and look up all kinds of information they didn't have access to before. It's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're getting a lot of information access, and on the other hand, you're getting a lot of inaccurate information access uh, because uh, laws will be out there regardless of if they're 15 years old or 10 years old or 5 years old. So, you know, unfortunately to the untrained, they may be looking at a law and thinking they've got – it figured out only to find out that that law was repealed four years ago. Um, so there is there is that risk, but there's also the ability to to do a lot of things on your own. There's a lot of people in the public who don't, and most of the public, which is one of the reasons why our, I think court shows are so popular. Most of the public does not learn its laws from you know hiring a two hundred, four hundred, six hundred dollar an hour lawyer. Uh, they learn it from shows like mine. Where they watch and they they you know get a legal principle explained to them, and uh, they learn a little bit every day. If you go to my my Facebook page, uh, it's uh, Judge Alex Facebook dot com slash Judge Alex TV, uh, or on my Twitter, which is at Judge Alex Ferrer, you'll have you'll see a lot of fans talking about legal issues or or rulings in cases or why it came out a certain way because they they really become devoted fans of of my show and the the legal process. So. I think that today's day and age, you're right. There's a lot more information out there, and there's a lot more access to it, and the public uh, is is drawn to it because of necessity. You know, most people cannot afford to hire lawyers. Lawyers are expensive, and those who can do, because clearly there's an advantage to being able to come in with a with a lawyer. But the the, the court systems have also the good court systems. Miami's got a great court system. I know Chicago does as well. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of accommodation for pro se litigants. You've got a lot of self-help centers where you can go in and take care of a lot of things yourself, file your own divorce papers, uh, file your own small claims cases, uh, which is what small claims is designed for, is to avoid the need for lawyers. Um, so you have more resources being developed for the public to, being able, to be able to handle their legal matters without having to you know, mortgage their house for a lawyer or something like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And but again, there's just there's so many times that people seem to find enough information to hang themselves. 
Um, like, yeah, there's a lot of things people can do on their own, but it's always good to hire, or whether you're going to hire a lawyer or go can have a good consult with someone, um, very important. And well, that's, at your, yeah, yeah, that's uh, something that I can't, I cannot reiterate enough. I've seen it so many times that somebody to, you know, to, to save a small amount of money ends up just blowing a hundred, a thousand times that money. Uh, even a family member of mine, who just did not want to have uh, a lawyer review her lease because uh, she was just not interested in having somebody, uh, you know, having to pay somebody a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars to review a lease. Ended up in litigation over that lease because of the way it was drafted. That ended up costing her over the long run over a hundred thousand dollars. So you know, it, I, I always tell people, you know. Uh, that investment, just having somebody who knows it look at it, pay the money up front, make sure it's done right because you're going to be paying and paying and paying later if you don't. Absolutely, I would say definitely if you can afford a lawyer, obviously get a good one. Word of mouth is is one of the best ways to do it. But uh, as to people who have had successful experiences with that lawyer, but but it, the experience is definitely worth something valuable, and, and I would recommend they do it, but everybody can't. And right, for those who right. can't, luckily there's a lot of resources out there to try to help them. Right, but especially in family law. I know that people don't want to hire a family law attorney, and there's this, determining the value of a marital estate, I just don't know how you can do all of that on your own if you don't know what to yeah. look for. Or splitting pensions or this. Or, you know, what if you got someone who, you know, some pension's fine, but then you got someone who's in the fireman pension system. You know, that's crazy. It's a whole different world. You know, so it's, what, what I, I, know what I it's, recommend. What I recommend to family and friends, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Nick, but what I recommend yeah. to family and friends when they're in divorce is my first choice is go through go to mediation go go get a lawyer who's only going to advise you go get a mediator a good qualified respected mediator and then get a lawyer to give you advice on what you're entitled to and then mediate it uh mediate the case and secondly um if not that, if not mediation, go to collaborative law lawyers. Those are lawyers who are prohibited from representing you at trial if the case goes to trial. So it doesn't. They they are required to withdraw if the case goes to trial. So there's no incentive. There's there's some lawyers out there whose only desire is to churn the file and take as many depositions and requests to produce and all these things for the purpose of running up their legal fees. And I've, I've run across them as a judge. I knew who they were. And the collaborative law lawyers do not make any money that way because the minute that the if the case is going to go to trial they have to back out and let you get other lawyers so it becomes a much cheaper way to go through a divorce so i always recommend that to people because if you've got you know i used to hold up a sheet of paper that was eight by eight and a half by eleven i used to tell the the, the litigants look this is everything you have now, i normally would split this down the middle and you would get half and you would get half I say, but if you're going to litigate this case, by the time they're done with the the discovery, <laughs> the request to produce, the interrogatories, the depositions they're going to take, the experts they want, you're going to have to pay for the experts. And I'm folding this paper, and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. And I'm telling right. them, all these people have got to be paid. I don't I don't fault lawyers for charging. They, this is their job. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect your plumber, your electrician, or police officers to work for free. This is right. what they do. So at the end of it. Fifty percent of what? I'm holding up a little piece of paper that's about the thickness of uh, the width of a ruler. Right. I'm saying and that now, this is what you're splitting, and 
half of this is yours. Um, so I always recommend mediation and, and collaborative lawyers if possible. I agree so much. And I'll say this too, with attorney's fees, it used to be that a lot of attorneys would walk the other way because no one wants to sue the client because you are you know, at risk of getting a bar complaint or you're at risk of a malpractice complaint. But I'm seeing more and more that says sue the clients because attorneys have to, you know, the perception is that, oh, my lawyer is rich because they're a lawyer. Not, not true. Plenty of lawyers who are struggling just because their clients aren't paying as well. And That's people true. are suing and they're taking boats and cars. They're taking other things as collateral and, you know, desperate times, desperate measures. And, you and know, you, you think you're going to, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say you also can't blame the lawyers for this because uh, it's not just the lawyers. You know, you have litigants who are so emotionally uh, just fried. I mean, they're angry because the wife was cheating on them or the or the husband was cheating on her or because whatever. You know, they're just they're they they're going to make them pay by in their opinion dragging them over the coals with a with a lawyer. Well, you know, you're gouging your own eyes out because the, the what you would have gotten is now just whittled down to almost nothing. So at the end of this exercise when 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 you're done spewing venom at, at each other, you sit back and look at your handiwork, and you you basically have nothing left. The lawyers build for all their time, the experts build for their time, and you just spewed venom all over the place, and you're left with nothing to to go on with. Um, you know, you may feel better, you may feel a lot worse. You probably feel a lot worse when you realize, you know, now I've got nothing. Um, so I, that's why I always encourage that because you know it's not I'm not just throwing rocks at lawyers here because frankly you know they're they're a lot of them are just doing their job uh, you know a lot of times it's the litigants who need to take a step back and, and get that emotion under control and realize that uh, you know you can be angry but if you let it control the litigation you're going to be sad when you realize what you have left. Right, right, and um, and to further on the the collaborative law, um, I, I'm very much a solid believer in that. Of course, it's not right for everyone, but getting things sorted out, uh, you know, by not going to court and signing that collaborative agreement is such a good thing. And I think that the more people who find out about it, consumers who are getting divorced are going to ask for and look for collaborative uh, solutions, um, especially when we turn and look at the litigation model on the post-decree end. And again, this is family law. Family law is one of my you know, main uh, areas I work with my attorney clients. And, and on the post-decree end, it's like people get addicted. It's like step away from the, you know, from the card table because, you know, you're playing blackjack and you're going you're, you're gonna to get back up. You're going to get back up. And everyone says, well, I'm going to get my uh, ex to pay fees from this rule to show cause and this and that. And it's like people get addicted to post-decree litigation to the point where they're just, well, now I'm, I'm so far down, I've got to win. But there really are no winners. It's just, no. you know, it's there, a very different in divorce, there's, there really aren't any winners. They're just degrees of losers. Um, you just, uh, you know, especially if there are children involved. And that's another thing I would tell them all the time is, is, you know, if you treat your spouse like this, just remember that your kids learn from what they see. And so what you're going to end up with is a daughter who looks for a guy who treats her the way, you know, daddy treated mom or or, or who uh, a son who treats his girlfriend the way he saw daddy treat mom or or vice right. versa or mom treat dad and and then you can you know look back at your legacy at what you've left you know how the children you've created by by uh not teaching them to respect your spouse you know relationships break up they go their course and people change and they break up and you, you accept it and you move on or else you you know you you reap what you sow
Exactly. Judge Alex, I want to thank you so much for your time and being on our program here and offering your valuable insight, especially when you you know the law in more states than I can even shake a stick at. I want to remind everyone out there that the new season of Judge Alex Season 8 begins next week, Monday, September 3rd. Again, check www.judgealex.com for affiliate information and air times in your area. There's also a link to all sorts of episodes where you can watch there. Judge Alex, again, thank you for your time and being on our show this afternoon. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nick. Take care. Sure. Any any parting words of wisdom? No, just uh, be happy to come back next time you need me and uh, wish your, your uh, listeners uh, that uh, that they uh, not have any litigation matters, but if they do, <laughs> smooth sailing on those. Smooth sailing. Well, well, you know what? I'll call on you for things that come up, and uh, you can be our, uh, one of our special because we don't have many judges we can call upon. So uh, I really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you again. Okay, my pleasure. Bye-bye. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by Augustine Legal PR and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring you our legal professionals, consumers, and guests, the tips, tools, and news you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and I thank you for your time.